This episode of Breaking Brave is brought to you by Soul Snacks. Soul Snacks are single ingredient, eco-conscious dog and cat treats sourced directly from farms in Ontario and wrapped in fully compostable packaging. Treating your pets never felt so good. Use coupon code BREAKINGBRAVE for 15% off on soulsnacks.ca. That's soulsnacks.ca. This episode is also brought to you by Crank Coffee, the newest member of the Neal Brothers family. Crank Coffee is a new Canadian whole bean coffee brand that is certified organic and fair trade, founded by the Neal Brothers, Peter and Chris. This brand was influenced by cycling, coffee lovers, and experts. Check it out at the Neal Brothers online shop and use our coupon code BRAVE for 20% off your first Crank Coffee purchase. Enjoy. Welcome to Breaking Brave. I'm your host, Marilyn Barefoot. And speaking of Barefoot, my guest today is Mr. Michael Houlihan, the founder of Barefoot Wines. Right off the top, let's be clear. I am not related to this amazing wine business. I mean, I wish I was. Michael and I met and have gotten to know each other all around the last name Barefoot. Talk about a brave journey. This is a business that was started in a laundry room of a farmhouse in Sonoma County with no money and no wine experience. Barefoot Wines was built on the back of insurmountable challenges that Michael describes now as gifts. Please welcome my friend, my colleague, not my relative, Mr. Michael Houlihan. I am so excited to have the man, the myth, the legend, Mr. Michael Houlihan, with us today. Welcome, Michael. It's great to be here, Marilyn. Uh, I enjoy reading your writings and uh, thinking about them. They're very deep and well thought out. Thank you very much for that. The first thing I think we have to get out of the way is my name is Marilyn Barefoot, and I have absolutely nothing to do with your incredible success story around barefoot wineries. Oh, I think you probably bought a few bottles. Oh, I did. People started buying me barefoot wine when they were in the United States and would come home to Canada because at that point it wasn't available yet in Canada. And they just thought that was the cleverest gift in the world. And, And I agreed. It was when it became available in Canada that then I thought it was the cleverest gift in the world to give to my clients for Christmas gifts. 99% of the time, the clients would then call and say, wow, I didn't know your family had a winery in California. I'd be like, if they did, do you think I'd be living in Canada in the middle of January? No. We are not related. I wish we were. But we found each other, Michael, and I'm so thrilled to now have you share your stories. So let's go back, back, back in time. How did you and your beautiful wife, Bonnie, get into this business? Was it kind of an accident? Yeah, we like to say that we fell over backwards into the wine vat. Um, Bonnie was a consultant, and the type of consulting she was doing was Uh, helping people out, getting their offices organized and overseeing the running of their businesses. And the type of business consulting I was in was helping people subdivide property and negotiate uh, 
uh, loans and, and other types of arrangements with the governments. So I was more uh, on the... Uh, on the government side of things, because that's what my background had been. And she was really more on the hands-on operational side. And so, and we met uh, in a rock and roll nightclub in uh, Santa Rosa, California. Uh, back in those days, you had to ask the girl to dance. Imagine that. Oh, hey, I, I come from those days, Michael. I, I've stood around in a lot of clubs waiting for somebody to ask me to dance. Absolutely. That's right. Well, she, she and I hit it right off. Uh, we have been together ever since that night, and that was 37 years ago. Congratulations. So since then, of course, um, she had a client who was owed about $300,000 for his grapes. Uh, and she had just met me, and she knew that I had some business experience and some negotiation experience. So she said, would you go over to that winery? and see if you can settle this debt for my client. So as I drove up, the guard stopped me at the door and he said, I hope you're not here to try to collect money because we've just filed a chapter 11 bankruptcy this morning. So it didn't look good for the home team, but I went no. ahead with the meeting anyway. And uh, I was able to talk them into trading goods and services for money owed. So I wound up walking out of the meeting with $300,000 worth of wine in bulk and bottling services, which is the ability to put that bulk wine into glass. Uh, right. I didn't even have the glass. I didn't have the corks, the foil, the label. I didn't know anything about marketing uh, wine or uh, what it would take or merchandising wine or shipping or any of that stuff, let alone all the legal, uh, you know, hassles that you have to go through. Um, you know, learning how to sell wine was an education. I mean, up in Ontario, it's the liquor control board, but in yeah. California, it could be uh, the Safeway or the Ralph's, you know, Pennsylvania, it's the Pennsylvania liquor control board. So we had to learn every province's law and every state's law. But I didn't know that at the time. And I came home and I said, hey, Bonnie, I think we've got it solved. We've, we've actually traded uh, the debt that your client has for goods and services, $300,000. You know, I said, all we have to do is uh, bottle it and sell it. You know, how hard could that be? And how long could that take? <laughs> That's <laughs> right. how Barefoot gets started. And we it. just went out and did a lot of research, asked a lot of questions, and, you know, basically got knocked down, uh, knocked out a few times. Um, lived uh, pretty much in a state of, you know, virtual bankruptcy for the first three years. Uh, it was it was amazing what we had to learn. Thank you. So I'm going to loop you back to um, Bonnie's client. So Bonnie's client who was owed this three hundred thousand dollars. Were you planning then to step in and actually bottle the wine and sell the wine and give the guy the three hundred thousand dollars, or how was that going to work out? Well, we went back to the guy and we said, hey, we got it uh, figured out. You know, I've got a trade negotiated for you. All you have to do is come up with a name and a label and a marketing program and sell it as bottled wine and you'll get your money back. And he said, are you crazy? He says, I'm a winemaker. I'm also a grower. He says, 
I don't have time to do that kind of stuff. He says, you're talking about a, mer a merchandising business, a mercantile business. Mm. So he says, you know, I guess I'm going to have to take the loss. And Bonnie looked at me and I looked at her and we thought, oh, no, that's too much money to lose $300,000. You know what? We'll do it. We'll take it over. We'll owe you the money. We'll, we will take over the debt. We'll create the business. We'll sell the wine and we'll put some dollars in our pocket and we'll be down the road. Pretty simple. That was plan A, right? Absolutely. Now, are you and Bonnie, are you both California natives? Are you, were you born and raised in California? Actually, Bonnie is from uh, Portland, Oregon, and I'm from San Francisco, California. Fantastic. And we met in between in Sonoma County, which is north of San Francisco and uh, south of Portland. At some point, you rented a farmhouse in Sonoma County in, when you when you decided to make each other each other's partners for the next 37 plus years, you decided to rent a farmhouse together. Well, yes, we did. We were driving along uh, one of the most beautiful drives in California, which is West Side Road in uh, Sonoma County. It's like driving through Bordeaux. Rolling hills, beautiful vineyards, redwood forests, rivers. It's just unbelievably beautiful. And I looked up on this hill and saw this little white house on the hill. And it was like a 1922 rambling kind of a kind of a cowboy house, you know, a ranch house. Yeah. And I said, now that's the kind of house that I'd like to live in someday. One year later, we moved into that house. Oh my gosh, it's like kismet because it became available for rent. It did. And we happened to have a friend who told us about it and we were able to rent it. And the landlord was Fred McMurray, the Fred McMurray, my three sons, Fred McMurray. Wow. Yeah. I loved that show. I think I was, I, I probably had a crush on most of those boys. So there we are. We are living in the cowboy house and, uh, you know, they say Fred had the first nickel he ever made in the hand that gave it to him. He wouldn't fix anything in that place. We knew when it was windy. We knew when it was raining because it was raining and windy inside. Wow. <laughs> you did it yourself, I guess. If you needed it fixed, you had to figure it out. We fixed it ourselves. And our office was in this laundry room, which was really a porch that had been enclosed. And uh, we didn't have enough money for a washer and dryer, but we needed a, we needed room for an office right? for barefoot wine. So yeah. We turned that into an office. So for the first year, the largest wine brand in the world had a door with two sawhorses under it for a desk, staring at a wall with a hot and cold water and sewer outlet. And that was my office uh, for the first couple of years. And, uh, you know, we, we made a lot of mistakes and we got a little bigger and we made more mistakes. And we finally moved into the attic of the Davis Bynum Winery. And uh, we we expanded from there. We moved into an airport park. We got a little bigger. We finally got a big building. Um, and uh, we were finally employing like 4,000 people who were connected to Barefoot uh, in the U.S., Canada, and throughout the world. It's It's staggering. I would love to, I want to hear about the adversity stories. So in um, 1986, when you guys were getting into this business, 
ages ago, a couple of years ago at least, you sent me a signed copy of your beautiful book, The Barefoot Spirit, How Hardship, Hustle, and Heart Built America's Number One Wine Brand. We're going to come up to come back to all that promotion. But in 1986, the wine industry was very snobby, if, I re- if I'm getting that right. And it basically was all about Chateau Neuf de Pape and chateaus on the label. We were having fun, you know, making fun of snobby people. I mean, it's all the rage today. But back then, the wine industry was isolated and insulated. You know, they were upstaged by the French, so they were worshipping the French and everything French about winemaking. It got to a point that they were actually isolating themselves from the majority of the buyers who actually were 37-year-old moms with two and a half kids who couldn't pronounce the French words on the label and were looking for wines that were very reasonably priced that taste the same from year to year, which was a whole different concept in winemaking at the time Mm -hmm. than vintage dated wine, uh, where you had to apologize for the chalkiness, this vintage, because the elephants got loose in the vineyard last year or something. So we were much more down to earth and fun And uh, we opened the door for beer drinkers and spirits drinkers to actually try wine at all. Yeah. You know, we expanded the size of the wine aficionado envelope. So the wineries at the time, they didn't like us. They said we were cheapening wine and, you know, you couldn't have fun with wine. And 10 years later, they were calling us up and thanking us for filling their tasting rooms. Yes, I bet the thank you cards were rolling in. Now, Michael, can can you tell me the story, because I've read about it in the book, of, of, I mean, the broader canopy here is you asked a lot of questions. You didn't have any wine experience. And so how are you going to figure out what people want right from the wine buyer at the you know retail level right down to the consumer? But there was a guy in the grocery business that you went to see, and he told you, I need this, 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 and this in a wine. I need it to be like $4.99 a bottle, a liter, and I need a very visible label that sets it apart. Can you tell me that story? Because that is the the essence of where I think it all starts. It does. Um, You know, when you don't know what you're doing, you're really humbled. uh, And, you know, we thought that the wine business was really snobby. And we wanted to do something that was fun, but we also, we were smart enough to know that we didn't know enough. So we went out and we asked questions. We like to say we made friends in low places. These are the (laughs) people who have actual dirt under their fingernails. They're not the white collar crowd that's sniffing, you know, swirling, you know, uh, and tasting. These are the people that are throwing boxes around in a warehouse, driving a, you know, a forklift or running a big bottling line or driving a truck. These people have hands-on experience. And so we would ask them, you know, what do you see that works? What do you see that doesn't work? You know, where is there an opportunity to get into the market? And so one of these people we asked was a buyer for a California supermarket, a pretty good size one with like over 200 stores. And his name was Don Brown. So, and by the way, um, Don Brown is played by um, a famous uh, Hollywood actor in our audiobook version of The Barefoot Spirit. 
And uh, we're going to give your listeners a free chapter to that. So they're going to get a kick out of this. Oh, this is amazing, Michael. We didn't even plan this. This is a surprise for you. Oh, this is fantastic. They'll love it because we'll come back to that in a second because I so want to hear about your your audiobook. But Don Brown. So the, I walk into the office and I say, listen, I said, we just converted $300,000 worth of debt into bottling services and wine. I can bottle wine any way you want it. How do you want it? And he goes, wow. He says, nobody ever asked me what I wanted. They're always coming in here with what they've already created and uh, trying to cram it down my throat and telling me about prices and values and awards. You come in here, you ask me what I want. I'll tell you. He says, take notes. So the guy's kind of rough, kind of a snarky guy, right? He's he's yep. old, even at the time. Uh, but you can tell he's been around the block. And he says, all right, here's what you do. He says, I want you to make it a salt and pepper act. I want you to make it better than Bob, cheaper than Bob. And I want you to put it in a pig. He says, you got that? And I'm writing this down. I'm writing down pig, Bob, you know, salt and pepper. <laughs> and I'm thinking to myself, what language is this? And he says, can you do that? And I said, yeah, I can do it. I had no idea what I was getting myself into, but I wrote it all down. And then on the way out the door, he says, oh, and one more thing. He says, don't make it a hill or a bridge. Don't make it a creek. He says, for God's sakes, don't make it a chateau and don't put it in French. He says, make it plain English, make the label the same as the logo and, and the name the same as the logo and make it, make it fun and make it so she can see it from four feet away. Wow. So I yeah. just in 37 seconds got the equivalent of a college education from somebody who really knew what was needed in the marketplace. Uh, and what if I hadn't asked? Right. So the moral of the story is ask uh, and you shall receive. Yeah. So I went and I trans. I had my friend who was in the industry. He's a second generation wine guy. And I just said, hey, tell me something. I said, what's the salt and pepper act? And he goes, oh, he says, that's easy. He says, that's like a red and a white in the same brand, salt and pepper. Get it? I oh. said, oh, yeah, I get it. I said, tell me something. Who's Bob? He says, Bob. He says, oh, that's Robert Mondavi. I said, not the Robert Mondavi. He says, yep, the Robert Mondavi. I said, oh, gosh, I got to make it cheaper than Robert Mondavi and better. That's going to be a tall order. I said, tell me one last thing. What is a pig? He says, oh, a pig. He says, that's the big fat bottle of wine. It's 1.5 liters. It's not the 750 that everybody calls a fifth. He says, it's not the standard bottle. It's the big fat pig bottle. <laughs> I said, you're kidding me. So this guy had given me the keys to access the market that I would have never found. He told me that I had to have a 1.5, not a 750. Yeah. And that there was room in the market for this big bottle, but not the little bottle, not the standard bottle. And he told me that it had to be two varietals, a white and a red. And yeah. that's all. And he told me that the label had to have the same logo as the name. So barefoot in the barefoot footprint. And so that's how that's how we got started. And, and, and that's where we got our best ideas came from, like I say, People in low places. You know, these were not wine aficionados. These were people who actually had to move boxes and fill warehouses and fill shelves and price it and move it out the door. <laughs> they had their finger on the pulse of exactly what was going on, and you went directly to the source. Good for you. The name. I was born into it. 
You weren't. So how did you come up with that name, Barefoot, with the, with the logo that you came up with? Well, Barefoot is about as far away from nose in the air as you can possibly get. Uh-huh. And it's feet on the ground. It's also a recreational implication. Mm-hmm. When you're barefoot, it's hard to be uptight. Yeah. And also, barefoot is the way that wine was originally crushed, the, the grapes. So for all those reasons, we thought it was a terrific uh, label. It was a name they could remember and an image they wouldn't forget. So we got into the business, you know, thinking about it uh, because the buyer had told us, you know, make it a, make it a name that she can relate to. And he kept saying she, she can see from her cart from four feet away, yeah. four yeah. feet away. There's people that graduate from college in marketing who haven't heard those words. Yeah. They don't realize that it's not what the label looks like on your computer screen. It doesn't matter if all your friends say it's cool. It yeah. matters whether or not it looks good in a store from four feet away, lit by terrible blue lighting, and yeah. maybe in the shade of the shelf above it, and on a round surface. That's quite a challenge to make anything pop in that, in that circumstance. Damn near impossible. So did you and Bonnie just go for a walk one day and decide that, yeah, barefoot, that's what we should do? Actually, we were out partying with friends until about three o'clock in the morning. And I mean, I was ready to hit the sack in that old farmhouse. And I walked in the door and Bonnie says, wait a minute. She says, stop. I've got it. And I said, what have you got? She says, I got the label. I know just what it looks like. Go to the chalkboard. We had chalkboards in those days, see? Yeah. And she says, uh, I said, can't this wait till morning? She looks at the clock. It's three o'clock in the morning. She says, it's already morning. (laughs) Draw a foot. So I drew a foot. She says, no, not like that. She says, rotate it a little bit, you know, a little bit off to the right. A little more. Make it look like an explanation point, she says. An italics exclamation point where the heel is the point and the foot is the top of the exclamation point. Uh, And then here, right barefoot, make it come into the arch. And she goes, and it took me a while to write it. She kept saying, no, no, and erase and erase and do it over, (laughs) over. It's now four in the morning, 4.30 in the morning. Four four o'clock in the morning. And the cat's looking at me like, what's with you? And uh, she goes, that's it. She says, that's going to sell a lot of boxes. Wow. So did you go back to Mr. Don Brown and say, hey, here it is? Or you just, in your gut, you just knew it? I went back to Don and I said, here you go. This is everything you asked for. You know, the name is the same as the logo. She can see it from four feet away. It's in a pig, you know, a (laughs) 1.5 liter bottle. You're speaking the language now. I said, it's it's about as good as Bob and it's same price as Bob. And, uh, you know, uh, it's a salt and pepper act. And he says, he looks at it, he spins it around. He looks at it again, looks at it again, doesn't say anything. I said, how many truckloads do you want? Because yeah. I thought it was my idea, you know, because we had $300,000 worth of wine came out to like 18,000 cases of wine. Okay. And I thought, well, you know, we could just sell it at Lucky Stores. That was plan A. Yeah. He says, I can't buy this. He says, nobody's ever heard of anything called Barefoot. He says, if you're going to put a million dollars into advertising, I'll put it in. I said, a million dollars. I said, I don't, I don't think I have $50 for advertising. 
Well, he says, nobody's going to take it. He says, nobody's ever heard of Barefoot. You know, people are going to think you're making fun of the wine industry. They're going to think that it's just a, a fad or, you know, something that's a, a flash in the pan, you know. Uh, and uh, so I, I said, but, you know, we bottled it all up for you. What am I going to do now? <laughs> you were the guy with the bright idea here. <laughs> yeah. He goes, well, he says, I guess you got to sell it to every corner mama, mama, papa, and every independent, he says, because the chains aren't going to touch it, neither are the box stores. So I said, you know, Don, I said, that's going to take years. He says, well, you better get started. Oh, my God. And kicked me out at that point. Two years later, though, to his credit, we had sold it to every mama, papa, and it became a household word in California, and it wasn't in the chains. And so he, Again. when I walked in he's, to the office, he says, okay. He says, we're putting it in. So he put it into 200 stores. And that was two years later. I mean, we thought we were going to build this brand up and sell it in about four years. Yeah, It took 20. Yep. So we were only off by a factor of five. <laughs> <laughs> and, and the sales, I love, there's a quote in your book that says, there are two departments within the business. There's sales and there's sales support. We'll come back to that. The sales were you just literally like you, Bonnie, and a handful of friends knocking on the mom and pop store's door and saying, here you go. This is going to be fantastic. Please take like a bottle, five, six. Actually, we did. But they said the same thing that Don Brown at the supermarket said. They said, you know, nobody's ever heard of Barefoot. Are you going to advertise this? And we said, no, I said, you, you know, we're not going to advertise it, but, you know, it's a colorful label. People always looking for something different. You put it up here, you make a stack and it'll sell. And they said, well, okay, but if it doesn't sell out in 90 days, I'm going to discontinue it, which means you're never coming back. Right. And so we were sweating bullets. The first 30 days, there was no reorders. The second oh, no. 30 days, there was a little reorder here and there, but not enough to keep it in the stores. And then we got a telephone call, and it was from a guy in Chinatown in San Francisco who was running a neighborhood association. And he was raising money for a kids after school park to keep the kids off the street, you yeah. know, from three until six when the parents got home. Yeah. And he was looking for money, and he said, oh, he says, you're a very wealthy winemaker, in Sonoma County. I said, wait a minute, pal. I said, <laughs> you know, I'd love to help you out, but we don't have enough money to, to even stay in business. I think you got the wrong number. He goes, no, you're barefoot. He says, you can do this. And I said, I, I'll tell you what. I said, I don't have any money, but I'll give you some wine for your fundraiser. Maybe, you know, it'll loosen some people up and they'll write a bigger check, or maybe uh, you can use it uh, at an auction and raise some money to buy some slides and swings, you know, in a sandbox or two, uh, you know, here you go. So I gave him cases for his fundraiser. Yeah. About two weeks later, we get the report. The sales are through the roof in the Chinatown area. All the other stores is terrible. We go, what the heck is this all about? What's going on with the Chinese folks that they discovered barefoot? And it was the fact that we had supported their fundraiser. They had tasted it. They knew what it was. And they also knew that it was for sale in the Chinatown area. 
So we thought, well, maybe we've discovered a different way of advertising. Maybe we should try this in another neighborhood. So we went to Twin Peaks, which is very, you know, towny neighborhood or Tony, as you call it. And uh, they were trying to clean up a creek. And so they had a fundraiser to do so. And we provided the wines. Boom, sales take off in that neighborhood, in those stores. So we, we decided, we called it Worthy Cause Marketing at the time. The word cause marketing hadn't been invented yet uh, by some sharp, you know, Stanford grad, I'm sure. Uh, yeah, I, I think of you as the inventor of this, Michael. When I read your book, you know, a couple years back now, you called it Worthy Cause Marketing. And I'm thinking all these marketing folks and Stanford graduates are all about, and companies now more and more and more about cause marketing. I'm like, Michael... You invented this. Well, we didn't have any choice, you see. You didn't have any cash. No, we had no cash. So the idea was that we had wine. And so we spent the wine like cash, but we decided to support these worthy causes. And it worked so well that even years later, when we had enough money for advertising, we decided to just go with worthy cause marketing. And we did it coast to coast. And we did it throughout Canada and we helped groups that are cleaning up creeks or trying to save forests or clean up the air or whatever. They were mostly conservation causes mm -hmm. uh, and they were educational causes and they were also supporting the arts. So whatever was important in the neighborhoods that surrounded the stores where our product was for sale is what we wound up supporting. It's brilliance. The people in California and eventually coast to coast they want you to do what you did. They want you to support what what matters to them. And, and, and making media companies rich is not what matters to them. It's amazing. You know, we spend about $2 billion a year in North America on media advertising. Mm -hmm. $2 billion. Mm -hmm. Imagine if we just took a percentage of that and used it for worthy cause marketing, the difference that we could make with some of these causes. And what I like is the idea that, you know, what they call cause marketing today is like, oh, look, you know, we support the American Cancer Society. You should buy our, you know, beverage. Right. Well, that's kind of bragging to the general public that you're a good guy. Yes. What we did was different. We weren't bragging at all. We were actually helping these groups achieve their goals. And the way we were doing it was we were printing their goals out on cards and putting them on bottles in the stores that were in the neighborhoods where they wanted to do these things. So it was educating people that they had no access to, which is the supermarket shopper or the yes. liquor store shopper. And uh, in that way, we were able to get the members of these nonprofit organizations, give them a social reason to buy our product, which was stronger than a mercantile reason. And you never went out and did any of that chest beating about it. You just quietly did it because that was the right thing to do to support the causes. And yes, you got exposure, sales, known for this stuff, for the great work you're doing and for your great wine. But it wasn't about, hey, look at me, I'm a great, I'm a great corporate citizen. That wasn't why you were doing it. No, we were trying to help the organizations. And uh, yes, we were hoping that the members would buy our wine. Well, the members didn't just buy our wine. They became advocates for our wine. And when you think about advertising, 
That's what advertising really is. You're trying to get a customer to turn into an advocate because yes. when he tells his mother or his cousin or his employer or his sister to buy this product, it's coming from somebody they really trust. It's coming from a family member or somebody they work with or somebody they're associated with. It's not coming from the commercial company that's pushing it. Absolutely. Of course, they're going to tell you it's great. Yeah. So it, it worked for us in so many ways. And we would have never discovered it had we not been broke. <laughs> well, and, and you make a big point in your, in your written book and in your audio book about these are gifts. In that a lot of people would have said, well, I guess we're going to have to quit Don Brown because we don't have a million dollars or half a million dollars or a hundred bucks for advertising. But yet you and Mike, Michael, you and Bonnie looked at these challenges and turned them upside down and said, well, it's a gift and, and, and we can turn it into something. We can somehow get around it. There's so many people in the world who wouldn't, couldn't or choose not to behave that way. You know, you're talking about what we call problem-solving barefoot style, <laughs> which is you get the problem, right? And then the first thing you do is you take inventory. And so when we took inventory, I mean, we were looking at assets that weren't obviously commercial assets, or they weren't obviously, uh, you know, production assets or what have you. And so we wound up using things in new ways. I mean, uh, Bonnie's mother, you know, she built Liberty ships up in Portland, Oregon during World War II, and she came down to help us. And so she helped us, you know, the way that she could. She, she planted, grew, and harvested, and fed us organic foods from an organic garden on our ranch. And then wow. uh, she also folded T-shirts and created point-of-sale materials and signs and boxed them up and sent them out to distributors all over the United States. But that was Bonnie's mother, Mabel. Bless her. And then we got her cousin to drive truck for us and do all kinds of other stuff. Uh, you know, anybody who can help out when a business starts is a gift. Absolutely. You know, we go through life, we're looking for that diamond, right? But like the South African song, she's got diamonds on the soles of her shoes. Mm -hmm. It's about the person that's looking for diamonds and they, they're walking on them. Yeah. They just don't that's, see them because they're covered with mud. Yep. It's a, it's a great analogy. Can we spend a couple minutes talking about how your brand, Barefoot, made such a big splash in retail? I mean... I remember eventually, once you were much bigger and much more broadly distributed through the United States, visiting, and God bless the United States, that you can go to like a public store and you can just buy a bottle of wine. And Canada is just, we're not there. We're trying to get there soon, but we're not there yet. Well, Alberta's uh, on the way. Yeah, we're slowly, slowly, slowly. But I would see like little feet decals on the floor. <laughs> You had all kinds of things going on at shelf on the floors with your cutaway box displays. Let's talk about that a little bit because that unto itself was so new and different. Well, that's what we call the difference between know the need and need to know. Okay. If you keep your people in the dark 
And if you say, you know, you're not qualified, so we're not going to ask you this question, or we don't want to scare you and tell you that we have a marketing problem because you'll run to the door because you're going to think that we're going to fold and you need a secure place to work. No, we did just the opposite. We said, look, we're going to tell you what our need is. Know the need, not need to know. And our need is, you know, we just got into this supermarket in Florida, Publix, and I'm sure Canadians know all about it. They do. That's why I use that reference, because if Canadians as a starting point or the first audience, where obviously I do a lot of work in the States too, but the snowbird community understands the word Publix. Yeah. So we went, so, so we had a salesperson it was speaking on screen to our entire staff. And, uh, you know, he said, I've got good news and I've got bad news for you all. He says, uh, the good news is we just got into Publix. He says, the bad news is they're going to put us in 60 stores. If we don't sell 100 cases in three months, we're going to be discontinued as a fail to trial and we'll never get into Publix. But if we do pass the test, we're going to be in all 690 stores. It's a big chain. Oh, yeah. And so we thought, oh, how in the heck are we going to do this? How are we going to? And he's and so like you know what's what's the bad news anyway? Because <laughs> that was challenging <laughs> enough. And he goes, well, the really bad news is they put us on the bottom shelf and nobody ever looks there. And so somebody says, one of our people say, oh, you know, we're barefoot. You know, maybe we'll pick up some foot traffic. And everybody uh -huh. laughed. And then somebody else says, you know, that's not so stupid. What if we had decals that were wine-stained footprints and we walked people in from the door down the wine aisle and turned them to where our wines were on the floor, you know? And, you know, we get them laughing and having a good time. And, uh, you know, that's half the sale. Well, that came from a 70-year-old receptionist. Now, what if our attitude in our company was she didn't need to know that we had a marketing problem? Yeah. Well, that idea was used all over the United States, uh, and it was fun. And it was a way for the stores after a while to have fun. Yeah. And uh, I remember one time I walked into a store in Santa Barbara. I hadn't been there in two and a half years, and I put the steps down, left, right, left, right. And I looked at them, and I saw left, right, left, left, right, left, right. And I went to the owner. I said, oh, I said, geez, I'm really sorry. I said, it looks like I put two left feet down in a row. He said, oh, don't worry. He says, everybody's got the hop down. <laughs> Absolutely spectacular story of collaboration and of teamwork. I, I absolutely love it in that often the freshest, best ideas come from not the marketing department, but fresh eyes, people who can see it with a different perspective. And and in Canada, when we finally started to get your beautiful products, there was always something fun going on. Uh, people would buy the wine, give me the keychain that would come with it. Or people would buy the wine and give me the little purple like holiday hat that would go with it. It was always such a fun experience interacting with your brand that it, it it from the moment you walk into the store, follow the footprints, you felt that brand in in your soul, if you will, before you even pick the bottle up off the shelf. Well, our idea was to, you know, success in business is really, uh, to a great degree, humility. Yeah. You as the owner have to say, look, 
I might not have the best solution. I certainly don't know it all. I need help. And so you go out and you can research, you know, all the laws and read all the marketing books. But at the end of the day, you really have to talk to the people who are working in the field, your own people and the buyers themselves. And you have to ask them for their ideas. And when you use an idea that comes from the field or your own people, everybody's really cheered up. They go, oh, look at that. This big company used an idea that came from an employee who wasn't even a marketing employee. Yeah, fabulous. I want to talk uh, with you a little bit about this other piece that I think you invented called the customer experience in that there's a there's a belief or you believed you and Bonnie believed that the customer would blame the brand for everything. So you had to get this, you know, bottling and distribution and display and everything from every potential break point, if you want to call it that, along the chain, you had, you had to ensure that was right. Because at the end of the day, it was your brand who was going to take it as a bad thing from the customer if they didn't get what they want, where they wanted it, when they wanted it. Exactly. Um, the worst customer experience in the world is somebody who loves your brand. They go to the store where they bought it last time and it's no longer there. Yeah. And the clerk says something like, oh, yeah, that barefoot is hard to get. Or, you know, they don't make that anymore. Uh, Why don't you buy this other brand? In other words, don't leave the store with money in your pocket. Right. You know, take something. And so, you know, when we realized that, we realized that staying in stock, you asked earlier about how we became strong in the retail market. It's because we focused on staying in stock. And I know that sounds very plebeian and, you know, blue collar. And it really is because in order to stay in stock, you have to sell your own people on everything that's involved. They have to believe that you have their best interests at heart. Then you have to sell your distributor's ownership and they're buying because they're looking for the strategic reason why they should carry it. Oh, if I carry it, it'll be at Publix. That will make my company more important to Publix. You notice I didn't say anything about wine or money, see, or or, or taste or awards, right? Just strategy. What is the marketing strategy here? And then comes his sales manager. He's working for a commission that's based on numbers, you know, and uh, so you have to be able to talk to him and say, look, we have a representative in the territory. If your people don't make the sales, our people will make the sales for you and you will still get your bonus. Well, now he's all for it. Again, nothing about wine. And then you talk to the salesperson and they're coin operated and you tell them, look, if you sell this, it could be your new Porsche payment. And Mm. so they go, oh, I see, you know, there's enough commission in it. And then you have to sell the retail owner and he wants to know, is it going to turn fast? He doesn't want to get stuck with it if it's going to move fast. And so you have to demonstrate to him that it is going to turn fast and that it has turned fast in other stores like him. And then you have to sell his clerk. Yep. And the clerk is the one who talks to Mrs. McGillicuddy and says things like, you should try this barefoot wine. It's going to go perfect with your ham. Yeah. And, uh, you know, what if he doesn't? Or what if barefoot runs out and he doesn't reorder it? And then if you're lucky, you get to sell Mrs. McGillicuddy. But most people who are in business, they go straight to Mrs. McGillicuddy. Yeah. They don't think about all those levels that are necessary 
before you even get the luxury of being able to sell the general public in order to keep your product in stock. And everybody has a different reason that they buy. And none of them has to do with your product, really. See, it has to do with things like numbers. It has to do with things like importance. It has to do with things like, uh, you know, uh, somebody else's success with it or how fast it turns. Yeah. It was an education. Well, one that you you clearly you clearly graduated from in a huge way because when you start to talk about all the dominoes, if you want to look at it that way, yeah, that's a good way to look at them. Down the line, Mrs. McGillicuddy is your last concern because all those other things have to be right in order for he to, for her to even be in front of your shelf or display in a retail store. Good that's right. You. With our product being there, Michael, what did the other wineries in Sonoma and surrounding regions, because I've been through that area a few times. What did they think of you when you came out with your big, bold logo and barefoot and decals on the floor? And what were these wineries thinking at that point? Were they supporting you or were they trying to run you out of town? Well, they they couldn't run me out of town, but they ran me out of the wine guild. They didn't want me to be in the wine guild. Uh, they took exception to our posters that showed uh, people walking barefoot on the f- on the beach, um, people being barefoot by the fire, uh, you know, people being barefoot in the clover. They thought that was too suggestive. Oh, my goodness. And uh, so I, I have a good friend who says, you have to remember, Michael, where there is mystery, there is margin. And uh, you're trying to demystify wine. And so they're naturally upset because they think that you're cheapening wine and will hurt their price points. And the fact of the matter was, we were going after people that were all fed up with wine and the whole Mm. snobby approach. So they weren't selling to them anyway. So we were selling to people who were beer drinkers or spirits drinkers and showing them what wine was and that it was palatable and fun and affordable uh, for the first time. And, and, those people went on and they, after they found out what wine was through Barefoot, they started buying vintage dated wine that was, you know, vineyard designated, you know, special reserve, $90 a bottle. But they, they didn't jump from beer to the $90 bottle. You were the pathway. So you opened up this whole channel of expanding the entire wine category because you brought them in at a fun, not threatening easy place to start. And then if they wanted to move on from there, then that was their choice. Well, you know, and the other thing is, and there's so much talk about it today, but we were one of the first companies to really recognize the power of the purse. And I'm talking about the female purse, Uh 78% of the buyers of wine, even in those days were women. Yeah, And they were buying wine, you know, like a staple for the week. They were looking for wines that taste the same, that were fun, that were easy drinking, soft on the palate and fruity. Uh, they didn't want to have to, to think about it anymore. They thought about their butter or their mm-hmm. flour or their sugar. And so because we were addressing that female market, for a long time, people couldn't understand why Barefoot was selling what it was selling, but it wasn't really biting into their business because okay. their business was primarily a male buyer, you see. 
And in those days, most of the supermarket buyers were males. So here you had this huge underserved market. Our winemaker was a female. Uh, Bonnie was the vice president of the company. Our merchandising manager was a female. Our warehouse manager was a female. Our, uh, I'll tell you, they are the reason why we were so successful. I bet. You were the first company to put a 1-800 number on your bottle. We got a lot of heat for that. I imagine you would. They said, if you put an 800 number on your bottle, people will call you up drunk in the middle of the night. And did and they? And they did. We took those recordings and played them for the staff, and they were quite entertaining. They raised the vibes on Monday morning. You know, it's like, listen to this. <laughs> but the idea was we also found out things like, hey, you know, I'm trying to buy Barefoot, and I'm over here in Oshkosh, you know, Wisconsin, and I can't find it at yeah. my MGM store. What's yeah. going on? Yeah. And so then we would take that and we would play it for our Wisconsin distributor. And we say, you know, hey, what's this all about? So it actually worked to our advantage. We also found out what was wrong with our package. I mean, one lady called up. She says, I can't get a full measure with Barefoot. So we called her back. And we said, what are you talking about a full measure? She says, well, you know, the fill lines are all different. Sometimes they seem to be high and sometimes they seem to be low. Now, we could have said, you know, if we were tech heads, we could have said, well, you know, that has to do with the air pressure and, you know, the volume of water. And, you know, uh, if the pressure is low, the fill line will be higher. Also, the temperature has to do with it. You know, and if we filled them to the top on a hot day, it would just blow the cork off. Here's what we said. We said, you're right. We should, we're going to work on that. We're going to give you a full measure. So we're thinking about it. One day we were at a party and we're all, you know, we gave this suggestion to our whole staff. We said, here's the problem. We're at this party and this woman walks in and Bonnie admires her dress. And she says, you know, I really like that midi length dress that woman is wearing. I said, well, what is it about you like it? Is it, is it because it's plaid and it's wintertime and it's warm? She says, no. She says, I like the idea that it covers the knees. And I went, covers the knees, that's it. So we came out with a foil cap that covered the fill line. It was longer than any cap of any wine in the entire industry. And so now Barefoot always looked like it was full, yet it Absolutely. still had that air room for expansion yeah. and contraction because yeah. of atmospheric pressure. But there's the brilliant insight that comes from the phone call on 1-800-MICHAEL. Why do these bottles not all look the same, right? Exactly. The last, the last part of all of this before we say goodbye to each other is how did the sale go down? So you worked and worked and worked. You figured you'd get this stuff sold in two years. And then maybe 20 years later, you, you've built this magnificent, the world's largest wine brand. Am I right when I say that? When we sold it, it was one of the largest wine brands in the United States. And it was in 28 foreign countries. Oh. When we went to work for our acquirer, they hired us to show them how the brand worked. And they took it to the largest wine brand in the world. Wow. But we like to think that we had an influence on that. I know you did. It was Ernest and Giulio Gallo that bought you in what year? In 2015? Uh, no, they, they got us in 2005. We worked for them after that for a while. But the way that that happened was... Uh, I was I was in a supermarket. Now, remember, I'm the president, the CEO of the company, right? 
I'm down on my hands and knees on the linoleum in this MGM store in the Twin Cities. And I'm pricing my own products because I know that if the if the clerk doesn't price them, they won't go on the shelf. If they don't go on the shelf, they won't scan. If they won't scan, the MGM buyer won't see it moving on his screen. And then I'm also picking up slack elsewhere. There's places where it wasn't selling. And I went there. And of course, the potato chips are in front of it. And that's why it wasn't scanning. Got it. So here I am, you know, in the store and it's really cold. And uh, I see this guy two, two aisles over and he's wearing a suit and tie and he's walking with these other two guys and he's pointing things out and he's walking along and, you know, he's asking questions. And then uh, about two or three weeks later, I'm down in Tallahassee, Florida. I, I'm, at the, uh, I'm at the public store down there and I see the same guy. Oh. And so I asked, the, I asked the rep that I'm working with down in Florida, I say, who is that guy? I think I just saw him a couple of weeks ago, you know, uh, up in uh, Twin Cities. Oh, that's Joe Gallo. I said, Joe Gallo. I said, not the Joe Gallo of Gallo Wines, the largest wine company in the world. He goes, yes, that's the guy. He likes to see things for himself. He likes to go out into the field because he knows that it's really important to stay in stock and to keep his merchandising, uh, you know, in top shape. Whoa. You guys were made for each other. I went (laughs) home and I told Bonnie, I said, I know who's going to buy this company. And I said, and and we're not crazy because I saw Joe Gallo out there doing the same thing I do, which is handling bottles, you know, pricing, doing all that stuff. And uh, six years later, he bought it. So did you, when you, when you first noticed and then realized or was told who Joe Gallo was in your head, had you guys started talking about, well, we're going to look for a buyer for this business. We're going to prime it up and polish it up and get it ready for sale. Actually, we had in our mind that we were going to sell it from day one. Okay. We thought it would take maybe two years, four years at the most. Okay. It took 20. And the reason is, is because we were nowhere near the volume that we needed to be for our price point to become an acquisition target. And we weren't smart enough to ask a broker who had sold businesses like ours what that number was for our price point in our category. Today, we tell our clients that the first thing they should do is find out how big their company has to be before it becomes an acquisition target. And is that is that number 600,000 cases a year? It was for us, yes. Yeah. And the, the, the other thing is uh, we wanted them to acquire us because so many companies are acquired and they die right after acquisition. Yeah. And we knew that a company that focused on merchandising, focused on staying in stock, focused on the customer experience the way that Ian J. Gallo did, would not only keep Barefoot alive, but would grow it. Yeah. And, you know, we had it in our mind that we were going to go out and teach what we had learned building this business for 20 years to other people who were starting businesses. And that's what we do today. We are, we are uh, consultants and advisors to startups and Fortune 500s as well. And we help them by sharing 
some of these experiences we've had and giving them ideas about different ways of doing things and getting around problems. So we knew that we had to have an acquirer who would keep the barefoot spirit alive. In fact, when they hired us back, they said, we're hiring you to keep the barefoot spirit alive in our company. Nice. And I mean, they had about 2,000 people, so that's kind of a tall order. It's not like, you know, 16 people in a garage. So keeping the barefoot spirit alive, we love the term so much, we call our book the barefoot spirit. Exactly. And our company is called the barefoot spirit because it is the entrepreneurial spirit kind of West Coast barefoot style. Absolutely. Get barefoot and have a good time, right? Or have a great time. Get barefoot and have a great time. Right. That's the whole idea. Have a great time. So, Michael, oh, you are such a delight. How can we, meaning listeners, how can we support you and what you're doing now going forward? Like, buy your books, buy your audiobooks. I, I mean, make charitable donations somehow, some way. What can we do to support all the wonderful things you're now doing, mentoring these other businesses? Well, I think you can tell your your friends who mm -hmm. are starting a business, especially what is known as a CPG, that's consumer packaged goods business. So mm -hmm. that's a product you can hold in your hand. It's not yeah. a virtual product. It's a real product. So if you have friends that are doing that, you know, I don't care whether it's hand cream, suntan lotion, wine, beer, any kind of a product, a tool, you name it. Those folks are the folks that we can help. And we have a huge amount of material that they can read on our website, uh, which is www.thebarefootspirit.com. And if your listeners would go there, they'll find a myriad of education mm -hmm. and uh, experience learned through hard knocks. And a lot of this stuff is street smarts that you yeah. don't learn in school. You learn by yeah. getting out there, making mistakes, and finding out what you have to do to do it right. So we give them a big head start. So yes, Bonnie and I always wanted to help out young people. We don't have kids. So for us, the people who are like 24 to 44 years old today, they're like our kids. And yeah. we hate to see them making the same mistakes we made. And if we can just show them a more constructive way to move forward, they'll have a big head start. They won't have to suffer like we did. They'll still make mistakes, but you can at least give them some heads up and some feet on the ground, so to speak, learning that, that they will derive from you. Well, Michael, this has been a complete and total delight. Thank you for all the time you gave Breaky Brave today. We'll certainly include the link for your audiobook. Thank you so much for spending time with me and talking about this. I felt like we could just talk and talk forever, but thank you for being with us. I so appreciate it. It was such a pleasure to be interviewed by one of my favorite writers. That means the world. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thanks so much for listening to Breaking Brave. For updates between episodes, please visit my website, MarilynBarefoot.com. You can also find me at Marilyn Barefoot. That's it for today. See you next time. <laughs>